Thank you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. First of all, happy three-year anniversary. That's awesome. It's our privilege to spend the Sunday with you. I, when I found out it was going to be your three-year anniversary, I was actually, oh man. I mean, it's a great privilege on one hand, and on the other hand, you don't want to leave people with a, a trauma time uh, on the three-year anniversary, right? So I got to do good. I don't want to like flop or fall on my face or say something that's really offensive, and you're like, my gosh, why did you do that to us on our anniversary, Pastor Mark? <laughs> so uh, Peggy and I, my wife's name is Peggy, um, we know that God has a great future for your church. We've been around your pastors and have always been uh, impacted and impressed by their passion for God and and the fact that, you know, they really, when they came here, they launched out and went out on a limb to do something radical for God. So, anyway, hats off to you guys. Thank you for having us. Um, Mark and Ty, thanks for hosting us and, and giving us the opportunity to be with you. And uh, I want to just ask my wife to come for a moment. She has something that she felt the Holy Spirit laid on her heart for your church. And uh, that's always exciting. So, I'll have her come. This is Peggy. Will you welcome Peggy? Is it on? Yes, it's on. Okay. Yes? Okay. Hi. Well, I, my husband is an amazing, gifted preacher, teacher. Wow. Ah, oh, shucks. Guy. Stop it. And, I, and I'm really content with just being his wife and saying, yay, go, Jesus, and pray for him. But um, so every once in a while I thought, but I thought, you know, I feel like I, maybe the Lord has something that he wants me to share to you guys. So um, I just kind of asked him, I said, is there something? And I was open if he didn't. But um, the question, <clears throat> I feel like... Um, Jesus is asking Sozo Church a question, and that question is, what do you want me to do for you? Mm-hmm. And um, when, I, when I, that came to me, I was like, okay, I know Jesus has said that. He said that to people in the Word. And I, so I looked it up. I looked up that phrase, and um, several different places he said it, but specifically in Mark chapter 10, he said it twice. And um, the first time he said it was when James and John asked him, um, hey, we want you to do something for us. And he's all, what do you want me to do for you? And mm-hmm. they said, we want to sit in your kingdom. We want one of us on your left, the other on your right. And the other uh, disciples are like, what? what? These guys, what is up with this? And Jesus was like, okay, are you sure you know what you're asking? And um, they said, yeah, I think so. And so he said, okay, then you will. But then he launched into his whole thing about the greatest will be the servant among all. And, and to um, those that want to rule over, um, they, uh, have authority, those ones are not the ones that, he, that are going to be great in the kingdom. And so anyway, he went into, launched into this lesson. But then later in that same chapter, um, blind Bartimaeus, a, a guy that was just blind and desperate and a beggar, said, mm-hmm. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they tried to shut him up. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't shut up. So he, he said, um, Jesus finally said, bring him to me. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And he said um, that I might receive my sight, which, you know, it's like, okay, this blind man is asking him, what do you want me to do for you? It's obvious that, you know, but he wanted him to say it himself. Yeah. 
what wow. do you, um, I want to receive my sight. So I just feel like the Lord's just saying, you know, do you want this glory and authority? You know, that's mm. all right. You know, Jesus will say, okay, you can, but you need to be a servant. Or yeah. is he saying, do you want to see? Do you want my mm. vision for you? So anyway, I just feel like that's what the Lord's saying to Sozo. What do you want, what do you want me to do for you? So wow. there you go. Thanks so much. It's so good to be here. I'm so glad that Stephen and Tabitha have a great place, a great church home to plug into. Mark and Ty are wonderful people. Yes. Amen. 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 Good job, girl. Wow. Well, I think I can pretty much sit down at this point, right? Will you pray with me before I actually get into this message? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I've been speaking in front of churches and our own church for decades now, and, and I do this all the time, but every time I come to a church, no matter how big, no matter, you know, where it's at, I always uh, feel a great sense of desperation for God to help me, <laughs> to show up, to stand up in me, and so um, I want you to pray with me, and, and I'll pray for you as well, okay? So can we pray together? Let's do this. Father, thank you for being here in our presence. Thank you for uh, your presence already meeting us and speaking to us in worship, speaking to us through the songs that we sang. And uh, Lord, now we ask you to speak to us through the word, to meet us, to feed us, to uh, speak to our lives, to remind us of things that we already know, and to maybe even show us some new things, Lord. We, we give this time to you. We ask you to fill it. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd be with my mouth and mind to make me bold and to make me clear and to be accurate to the scripture, to the text, to your heart, to your character and your nature. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give us the ability to hear what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you about a very familiar um, story. I want to talk to you about Jesus and his death on the cross. And I'm specifically going to focus on the last seven things that Jesus said from the cross, but I don't have time to get into all seven of them, so I'm going to focus on four of them. And I'm going to look at four of the last things that Jesus said as he hung on the cross and their implications to our life. And uh, my message is the last the seven last saving words of Jesus. And so we're going to look at that. And I want to start with a quote from Oswald Chambers. And he says this, In the cross, we may see the dimensions of divine love. The cross is not the cross of a man, but the exhibition of the heart of God. At the back of the wall of the world stands God with His arms outstretched. And every man driven there is driven into the arms of God. The cross of Jesus is the supreme evidence of the love of God. Amen? You know, something strikes me as I read the Bible, as I read the New Testament, and I go through the Gospels, I go through the epistles of Paul, I go through the epistles of the other writers, the other New Testament writers, something strikes me, and that is that even though they had great insight, great knowledge, and they expounded upon it in a number of areas within the Scripture, they always came back to Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, His person, and His work. The entire message of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is always ultimately about Christ and His cross, and His resurrection, and His ascension, His session, who He is as the supreme King of all. The love of God manifested in Christ is the central message of the entire Bible. Amen? Amen. And so, as I um, come to this time of the year, every year, 
I reflect upon what Jesus did for us, and I think about it, and I just want to take you through his last day quickly. I want to take you through that last day and remind you of what he, what he went through. And you can see this in the last two chapters of each of the four Gospels. I'll let you read it on your own. But I just want to walk you through there. And first of all, this is what happened. Jesus went through agonizing blood, sweat, and tears as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane means the oil press. Gethsemane means oil press. And in this place of the oil press where the olives were pressed out and crushed, in this place, Jesus experienced blood, sweat, and tears as he prayed for you and I. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, his treasurer, Judas, Judas Iscariot. A little girl that was in our church growing up, now a young woman, she used to always call him Judas Iscariot. And it's true. And he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. And then Jesus appeared before the high priest. And the high priest put him through an unjust trial where he was spit upon, struck in the mouth, and wrongly accused of things he never committed, things he never did. And then one of his beloved disciples, one of his kind of, you know, right there in his core, his center core, his, his top three, Peter, denies that he even knows Jesus Christ. And then Jesus appears again in another trial before the Sanhedrin, the council the high council, and they wrongly accuse him, and and people come in with trumped-up charges and say things about him that he never did. And then he's brought to trial on two more occasions. Now, are you with me so far? A total of four different times he appears before different people and magistrates, and he appears before Pilate and Herod, and he's mocked and he's ridiculed during this time. And then Pilate brings him in front of the people and says, Behold the man! At the very time the priest would have been examining the lamb that would be sacrificed, they turn to Jesus and say, Behold the man. And the crowd begins to threaten Pilate that if he releases him, because Pilate wants to release him, he recognizes Jesus is innocent. This man has done nothing deserving of death, and he tries to release Jesus, and he finally, you know, he, he, he comes under the peer pressure, and he says, Ah, you know, I'm going to have to wash my hands of this man's blood. Pilate's wife comes to him and she says, don't do anything to harm the man. I had a dream about him. He kept me up all night. Don't do anything to harm him. But Pilate ultimately condemns Jesus because he's afraid of the crowd. He's afraid that there will be a riot in the city. He's afraid that he'll lose his position as governor. And then Jesus is mocked. Judas commits suicide by hanging himself. Jesus is whipped with a flagellum, with a Roman cat of nine tails, his flesh is torn from his body, spit upon, his beard is ripped from his face, a crown of thorns is put upon his brow, a reed beats it over and over into his brow, he's bleeding everywhere profusely, he's unrecognizable, Isaiah tells us in the 53rd chapter, the Psalms tell us through the, through the prophet King David, that Jesus is beyond recognition, his, his joints his bones are out of their joints. He's in, experiencing incredible pain. And then they take him and, they, and he carries his cross. And then they hang him on the cross. And they crucify him at the place of the skull. And he carries the sins and the weight of the world from Adam to Z. <laughs> from A to Z through all time. He wraps up all of humanity's yuckiness in himself. And so... You know, if you're here today and, and you would say, you know, I don't, I don't know that, I, that God can relate to me. 
I don't know that God understands my stuff. I don't know that God gets what I'm going through. I don't know that God really can relate to us. All you need to do is look at Jesus Christ. If you've ever doubted that God understands your dilemma, your circumstances, your struggles, your battles, look at Jesus. He's the pattern. I mean, think about it. Every one of the events surrounding his his death are filled with injustice, brutality, corrupt courts, brutal police, wicked leaders, self-righteous, religious leaders, a fickle crowd. All of them are involved in condemning an innocent, perfect man who just happens to be God in the flesh. He came to his own. His own didn't receive him. Even his own family regularly said he was crazy and out of his mind. This guy gets us. I mean, he gets us completely. He came down into our stuff. He got onto our field. He walked in our shoes, and he gets us. So, you know, if you're ever feeling like God's out there, and he doesn't get you, and he's separate, and he's transcendent, he can't get imminent, he can't get close to our stuff, he's in your stuff right now. He sits with you, and you're weeping. He cares about your deepest struggles. Amen? So let's look at his last seven words. And I'm going to obviously have to move through these quickly, but the first one is Jesus is hanging on the cross and he looks down at his mother and he looks over at John and he says, woman, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mother. And it's very interesting because Jesus had siblings, but none of them were at the cross. And he's hanging on the cross and the only one of the men that ever, you know, the only one of the men that stays with him at the cross is John. John's there and his mother's there and he turns to his mother and he says, behold your son. He does an adoption program right from the cross and then he says, behold your mother. And this strikes me because it shows that Jesus, down to the very end of his life, even as he's dying, he's taking care of family business, he's honoring his mother, he is bequeathing to John all the knowledge of his mother, watching him grow up and, and live, even later on as he writes a gospel, all the relationship that will take place between Jesus' mother and John will be shared two ways. Right there at that moment, even as he's hanging on the cross, going through excruciating suffering and pain, he is taking care of his mom and he's blessing his faithful follower. He takes care of business even in his suffering. And then the second thing, and this is one of the ones I really want to concentrate on because I think it's where we're all at no matter how deep we are in God and how long we've walked with him. And that is, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Luke 23, 34, Jesus says that he cries out from the cross, Father, for the, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This is the very essence of the simple gospel. We are sinners. The scripture actually says that we are enemies of God. You ever think about that? We're enemies of God, we're under the wrath of God, we're in rebellion to our Creator, we're doing what our fallen nature dictates to us, we're not looking for God. No matter what you might think about yourself, you know, one thing I've learned about myself was although there was a deep hunger, ultimately it was for God, although there was this desire within my humanity before I knew Jesus Christ, um, and and I tried to, yes, fill it with many other things, I really wasn't looking for Him. He chased me, he pursued me, he found me, he came after me, and I was a rebel. I wasn't looking for him when he saved me. I didn't care about him. I didn't want to please him. I didn't want to keep his law, keep his rules. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just 
A dog barks, a cat meows, a sinner sins. And I was doing it pretty well. I was kind of gifted at sin. And Jesus, from the cross, shows us that forgiveness can ultimately only be secured through and and because of the cross. As he's hanging on the cross, it's as though he's entering into his priestly function. And right there, he's already doing that intercessory work. He's going to bat on you and I's behalf from the cross. And he's saying, right now, Father, don't charge this to their account. Right now, go into that balance sheet that shows red in the billions and trillions and quadrillions. Go into that balance sheet and say, paid in full. Right now, Father, take the account of of my righteousness, my perfection, my beauty, my holiness, and put it over in their account. Lord, show that their account is black into the billions and trillions and quadrillions and infinity. Right there on the cross, he's already taking care of business. He's securing our forgiveness. I mean, I mean, think about that. It's interesting, G.K. Chesterton, who was a Roman Catholic thinker in the early 20th century, one time a newspaper in England posed the question, what's wrong with the world? And he wrote back to them a simple little letter. He said, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. That really kind of captures the reality of when your sin comes home to you. Because I have found many times it's very easy for me to recognize other people's sin. How about you? I mean, it's really easy to look out there and see the need for others to experience forgiveness and to think from my lofty perch, man, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. I don't do that stuff. I don't act like that. What, what, are, what are they doing? I could, listen, when you find these words coming out of your mouth, how could they do that? I could never. Watch out. Watch out. Because I've learned about myself, I could. And probably have. Right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, we're just, you know, a lot of times I'm, I'm engaging in acts of rebellion against God, grievous things against God, and I don't even know I'm doing it. Some of us, we're we're offensive to God and other people, and we don't even see it. And we need Jesus to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. Amen. The third thing, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know the story, two criminals are hanging there, and... One of them is accusing Jesus and speaking against him, and the other one says, don't you fear God? We're under the the same sentence of condemnation, and we deserve this, but this man has done nothing wrong. This is in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. This man's done nothing wrong, and then he turns to Jesus, and and this this is powerful. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is working on this particular thief. And as this particular thief is hanging on the cross, he seems to, somewhere in the process of looking upon Jesus, get it. The Spirit of God breaks in on him, opens his eyes, and makes real to him that this man is not just a man, and he's not just an innocent man, but he's a king of a kingdom. 
And he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, at that moment, hanging on the cross, the only thing, listen, he never stopped and said, Jesus, come into my heart. He never said, he never went through this particular prayer. He didn't go through baptism. He didn't, he didn't go through any of the nice evangelical recitations that we make in order to enter into God's presence and to be okay with God. He didn't do any of that. He just simply said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man recognized Jesus' purity, his innocence, his kingly authority. He recognized his own lost state. He was repentant. He was humbled. And at that moment, he trusted Jesus Christ to take him into a whole new kingdom. And Jesus promised him that kingdom, eternal life, being with him that day in his presence in in paradise. And he just simply demonstrates that simple childlike faith in Jesus saves any person. And there isn't some kind of formula It's a matter of heart, vision, faith, simple trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And I love that because, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit is mysterious. I've seen people that said the prayer, and I'm like, well, obviously they said something, but nothing happened. And then I've seen other people, they can't even trace in their life a moment or a a transaction or a service or an altar call. They can't do any of that. All they can say is, somewhere in my journey, Christ became real to me and I trusted Him and I've never been the same and He's working from the inside out and my life is different. And so we need to trust that God knows, right? He knows the human heart. Can somebody give me an amen? amen? The next one is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, I've read probably hundreds of commentaries on this particular cry from Jesus. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? It says, the sixth hour had come, which would be noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon until three in the afternoon, it was dark. And at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've read so many commentaries on it, and there are a number of takes as to exactly what Jesus is trying to express and what he's trying to say. And I just have come to recognize that with darkness covering the land and all of creation seeming to reflect the state of what is going on in the world at that moment. Think about it. Noon to three, the brightest, the hottest part of the day. That time of the day when the sun is at its full strength, the land becomes dark. Jesus cries out from the cross at the end of that period of time. And something profound is happening, which is very mysterious and we can't exactly say, but I'll tell you what what I believe and what I see. With darkness covering the, the land, Jesus experiences what sinful humanity must go through as all the sins of creation, humanity, time are laid upon him and in him. It's as though at that moment he's absorbing the full alienation of the human soul. Now think about this with me for a minute. 
Every man, woman, and child ever born on this planet has lived their entire life in a God-bathed world. Now, you might not realize that because not all of us experience God, but I, I want you to think about the fact that even though our planet is fallen and broken and there is evil and sin everywhere we look, you know, turn on the news, right? Don't turn on the news. There's a better story developing. But even though that is a reality, all over our planet and throughout creation, the fingerprints of God abide. Beauty, art, the human conscience, the ability to love, to experience things that are sublime to us, things in life that take our breath away, things in life that impact us and move us. All of those things are God's way of saying to the world, even in the midst of our suffering, we hear that still small voice, we experience comfort. In the middle of all of that, God is saying, I'm here, I'm here, here I am, here I am. And even people that deny Him, even the skeptic, even the atheist, even those who maybe even might be considered God-haters, live in a world bathed in God. But at separation, which actually began in the garden, you know, at that moment when they partook and then they were kicked out of the garden, and they began the slow process of human separation from the presence of God, the abiding presence of God, until the the moment a person dies. And, you know, I'm not going to get into my theology or my beliefs about hell or the eternal states or any of those things. But let me just say that one thing that we know is there is a sense of separation that takes place between God and a human soul. And uh, it's the deepest sense of death there is. It is abiding in a consciousness with no God. And let me just say this to you, nobody that's alive on this planet or has ever lived on this planet during their time of living here has ever experienced what it actually means to be apart from God. But there is a state when humans will be apart from God. Think about it. Right now, we are experiencing a world that has love, that has grace, that has mercy, that has beauty, even in the midst of all of the brokenness. But at this moment, Jesus in his soul, not in his spirit, he, he maintains union with his Father. I, I've never believed those who say that Jesus was separated from God. He was never separated from God in spirit. And what I mean by that is his essential nature, his deity, was never lost. But in his human soul, in the depth of his human soul, in who he was at that moment as a man, he went into that place where all human beings that will reject God went. He went into the moment of separation and he experienced what it is to be parted from God within his humanity. And he cried out what every human being who ever experiences that moment will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went into rejection and alienation completely and totally on you and I's behalf so we don't have to. And that even goes for our current state. Think about it. The world you live in, the life you live. You may be one of those people the whole time you were growing up. All your life. Maybe through siblings, through parents, rejection, alienation, being left behind. Maybe you didn't have parents. 
Maybe you went through an experience where you were abused or just neglected. And your, your life has been a life of rejection. And you carry rejection like a cloak. And usually rejected people reject, right? They carry this rejection. and They're really afraid to get close to anybody. So they start to get close to people. And, they, and the only response they know is, I don't want to go there. This is going to hurt too bad. Reject. Right? And, they, and, and you have a tendency when you live like that to go through life waiting for the next alienating experience, waiting for the next rejection. And what I have to say to you is that Jesus was rejected, alienated, and cut off so you could be reconciled, so your soul could be healed. See, Jesus isn't just in his death on the cross taking care of legal transactions. He's doing something that deals even with the emotion of man and the soul of man. And he's genuinely able to go into places and spaces in the human heart that we can't get to on our own, that psychology can't touch, that sociology can't touch, that none of the social sciences can get to. He can get to the very root of human nature and heal it. And so what I want to tell you is if rejection and alienation is what your life experience has been, go to Jesus, the one who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And let him touch you. Let him heal you. Amen? And then he says, I thirst, which is Jesus experiencing the excruciating thirst, not only of the body, but of the soul, so that we can drink deeply of the life of God. Remember, he said to the woman at the well, I have something for you to drink that if you drink it, you'll never thirst. And here he is on the cross saying, I thirst. And he's experiencing something at that moment, that, that, that separa- again, that separation, that sense within people that is thirsty and hungry for something. The reason that we run to addictions, we run to relationships, we run to sex, drugs, rock and roll, or whatever it may be, and we're looking for something to fill, to touch, and we're just, we're thirsty all the time, and it never touches us. Just like that woman at the well, all these relationships, and Jesus said, you've been with five men. This one you're with right now is not your husband. (gasps) Surely I perceive you're a prophet. And then Jesus says, here, I got something to drink for you. Well, now he's hanging there and he's saying, I thirst I thirst, and he is experiencing the depth of human thirst so that he can fill us, so that we'll have to drink from him. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in that moment, he demonstrates for us how to trust our life and how to even trust our death to Abba. And that's the term he uses. He says, Abba, into your hands. What, What complete resignation to the Father and to the will of the Father. How beautiful. Father, into your hands I give myself. And the last one is, and this is my favorite. I love ending on, it is finished. Oh, three powerful words. It is finished. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. All that he was sent to do in paying for our sin was now complete. He simply declared the finished work like a runner crossing the finish line. See, at this point, because he was sinless and he was innocent, resurrection was inevitable. You have to understand something. Because Jesus was who he was and because he'd done what he did, death had no right to hold him. Resurrection was inevitable. Right there as he hung on the cross, his blood poured down the cross as his life was given, as his soul was given, even as an offering for sin, 
He says, it's done, baby. He's that runner. He's crossing the finish line. He's completing the work. No longer will it ever be necessary again to sacrifice a bull or a goat, for the Lamb of God has paid the price once for all time. Amen. He finished everything necessary to redeem and restore humanity. And here's just the point I I really want to hit on. And you and I cannot add one thing to his work. Did you hear that? Because I know how we are. We blow it. We go into a pattern. We fail. And, you know, we're, we're like, you know, I, we, we don't want to flee to the cross. We don't want to run to Jesus. We don't want to go to his blood. We don't want to do those things because we're ashamed and we're hiding. We're pulling an Adam and an Eve. And then we start breaking out our fig leaves and covering ourselves. And we're hiding behind the trees in the garden. And we're, we're doing our very best in our man-made religion and our self-salvation project. We're doing our very, very best best to make ourselves presentable to God so he'll accept us. And God says, I don't like any of it. It stinks. I don't want any of it. When you blow it, I want you to run to the only thing that can cover you. I want you to run to the only thing that can make you clean again. I want you to run to the only one who can make you clean again. I want you to come to the foot of a cross. I want you to come and lay your life down. Bow yourself before Jesus because he's the only one. And say, here I am, Lord. I did it again. I blew it. But I know that your mercies are new every morning. There's a fresh supply. Your grace is inexhaustible. Your love never fails. Here I am. Did it again, but you're well able. I claim the cross of Christ. I claim the blood of the Lamb. I claim Jesus. My plea, my only plea, is Christ and his cross, Jesus crucified. Amen? And it's enough. He's enough. He did it all. He finished it. All of your little grovelings and your self-flagellation and you're staying guilty for several days thinking if i'm just if i feel bad long enough he'll finally be satisfied and then i'll be able to come into his presence all of that means nothing to him he just wants you to run to what his son did it's your only plea jesus is your only plea amen it can, it is finished simple it is finished. Well, as you can know, I'm a, I'm a preacher, and so I can always say more, but I won't. And so, you know, I, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Mark here in just a minute, but Jesus has shown us the way to conquer through suffering and death because he did it once and for all. If you've ever wondered what the heart of God is for humanity, what the heart of God is for you, go look at those last seven words because they're for you. Amen? Forgive them for they know not what they do. He thirsted for you. He was forsaken for you. He was rejected and alienated for you. And he finished it for you. It's all been done for you. Because of Jesus, we win. Amen.